Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Many people associate racism with the South, but actually it's the American Midwest that's held some of the nation's most deep-seated convictions about the importance of whiteness. From American Gothic to The Wizard of Oz, imagining the Midwest has quietly gone hand-in-hand with imagining whiteness as desirable and virtuous. In their new book, Britt E. Halverson and Joshua Reno argue that seeing the Midwest as normal and truly American didn't happen by accident. A lot of deliberate work and effort went into achieving that result. Their book, Imagining the Heartland, White Supremacy, and the American Midwest, is published by University of California Press, and I'm very pleased that it brings Britt Halverson and Joshua Reno to our show now. Welcome. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Leonard. And uh, I'm I'm going to just assume that the two of you are going to work together, but I'll start off by directing my first questions anyway to each of you. Britt, many people were shocked that the murder of George Floyd was in Minneapolis, a city widely thought of as pleasant and peaceful. Isn't it generally assumed that racial violence is most likely to take place in cities like Birmingham, Alabama and Oxford, Mississippi? Hmm. I think it's uh, important to recognize that racial violence exists all over the country. And I think part of the work that we do in this book, um, really unpacking a lot of the myths of sort of bucolic, small town, Midwestern spaces, perhaps goes hand in hand with that assumption um, of sort of how and where uh, certain spaces um, exist in the American imaginary. So um, I think that those assumptions are something we delve into very deeply in this book. Well, the media consistently described the protests following Floyd's death, not as Midwestern, but as urban. Does Mm -hmm. the term Midwestern seemingly suggest rural and seem to exclude people of color? Well, that's one of the things that we look at deeply in this book. We're really interested in um, how ideas of the Midwest uh, are almost in a lot of ways not about Midwesterners or even Midwestern spaces, but that they've been a real uh, kind of screen or even canvas for projecting and absorbing a lot of ideas about whiteness and virtue or white deplorability, um, kind of this good white, bad white dichotomy at different times in American history, and that those images have surged and that they've um, kind of become especially prominent at times of political and economic inequality. And so Midwesternness, ruralness, uh, whiteness have often gone hand in hand in some of those portraits. Joshua, when African-Americans left the South in the last century as, as part of the Great Migration, didn't many of them move to cities in the Midwest? Um, Chicago has a, a large black population. So does Kansas City, and I can probably come up with a whole bunch of others. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, that's been very well documented. Um, also, and this is perhaps less well uh generally known. Um, They moved to places that already had uh, not only indigenous people that had lived there for quite some time, but also, you know, people, uh, Latin Latin American people, people migrating from other parts of the world, the the kind of whiteness of these places as sort of 
typically imagined uh, didn't exist even before the Great Migration. But yes, certainly the Great Migration um, had a major impact on new ways of imagining the Midwest. And if anything, just to echo what um, Britt has said, w- what that has meant is that the image of the Midwest has had to be this very pliable, flexible notion that can deal with those seeming contradictions, that, right? So the most obvious is you ask your average person, maybe not only in the United States, but in the world, like what do they think when they think Midwest? They might say two seemingly contradictory things. They might say, well, uh, well, uh, you know, rolling cornfields and, mm-hmm. and uh, farmland is, is stretching out uh, across the landscape. But they also might say, oh, Henry Ford and mm-hmm. big factories and manufacture and industry. So those two images uh, sit together somehow in our imaginations. And one of the things we tried to do on our book was to show how, you know, this bizarre notion of whiteness and this bizarre notion of Midwestness kind of work together in this dance so that over time at different times, uh, often, as Brett was saying, in, in situations of crisis, um, they can sort of... Uh, play off each other one can be expressed the other put more into the background but somehow the image remains seemingly stable in our imaginations despite constantly twisting and turning when african-americans left the south in the last century to what extent did discriminatory laws prevent them from doing things like purchasing homes the practice known as redlining hello josh Oh, I didn't know who the well, question was. I was going uh, to direct a few follow-up questions with you, and then, <laughs> then we'll just move around. Oh, fair enough. Well, you know, uh, certainly uh, redlining um, had and similar practices, sun, you know, sundown towns. Um, there were, you know, throughout um, the Midwest and, and Northeast and other places um, where the Great Migrations moved toward, there were all kinds of openly discriminatory practices and more subtle ones, right? There were, there were yeah, lynchings, of course. There were lynchings all over the country, even though the ones in the South are perhaps stuck in the imagination and happened certainly with a great deal more frequency. And also, also because we associate, well, slavery occurred in mostly in course. the South. And so uh, there's a, an obvious direct link. Yeah, of course, of course, you know, but, but that, you know, one of the things we're trying to do with the book is, as you said in your opening statement, um, you know, expand your average kind of uh, person's notion of sort of quote where racism is and, and what racism looks like. And in a way, racism is less our direct object of focus than white supremacy for that reason. Can't many white Midwesterners live their lives with little or no interaction with people of color? I mean, I, I, I would say no in the sense that, and this is really the focus of our book, um, we don't live anymore uh, in societies that are relatively, uh, sort of small communities that are relatively isolated from one another. We're saturated with public images, public culture. And so even if you are someone who lives in an overly, or overwhelmingly white town, and frankly, I didn't grow up in the Midwest. I grew up in Walworth, New York, a small rural town outside of Rochester. I There, there were hardly any people of color in the town I grew up in. And so that wasn't crazy. But I saw and interacted with and had images of uh, people of all kinds, you know, on my television screen, in the music I listen to, in the movie theater. And those public images, you know, send messages not only about um, people of color, but they also tell us stories about what it is to be white. So I didn't set foot in the Midwest hmm. 
until much later when I went to graduate school, but I'd heard a lot about it and I'd seen it depicted and I knew in my mind that it had some relationship to these notions of nostalgic whiteness, um, regardless of who I met in my day-to-day life. Britt, what makes the Midwest a distinct region? What are its borders? Would you describe the Midwest as rural heartland in contrast to the cosmopolitan and possibly corrupt values and populations of of coastal cities? Well, I think that's a great question because there's what we point out in our book, too, is there's a lot of disagreement over what the Midwest actually is. And we're more interested in some ways in the Midwest as an imagined space in American culture and how that's gotten produced over time. But I think um, certainly one of the things on the ground, people who identify as Midwesterners would well point out that there's a great variety of different kinds of spaces in the Midwest. There's small Midwestern towns that maybe seem more like Prairie Home Companion. There's farms and farmland, but there's also um, vast stretches of industrial factory spaces in northern Indiana, in steel mills, and there's um, medium-sized towns um, like the one I grew up in in western Michigan. Muskegon, Michigan is a town of about 150,000. And there's a lot of towns like that, Springfield, Illinois, and Kokomo, and um, that commonly get left out of dominant portraits of the Midwest and that get circulated far and wide. And that's one of the reasons we really we were interested in and not just the idea that these portraits are deeply selective because they are, um, but also what kind of cultural work do they do? How do they um, invest in certain durable stories that just keep getting repeated? And the more you see those stories repeated, I think the question then becomes, why? Um, what kinds of claims are they making about places, about belonging, about deservingness, and about land? Well, this is um, unique to the United States. Don't other countries also idealize their heartland and view it as authentic and, and uh, an example of normalcy? normalcy? Yes. And I think um, that's one of the things uh, we're also grappling with is that these ideas of heartlands um, can be found in many different industrializing countries in the late 19th century, for sure. Um, we look at examples of that in Germany, and we look at examples of that in Japan, where there's these sort of rural ordinary centers that are created at times of incredible cultural change with industrialization. They're almost imagined as these calm centers around which life is swirling at these times of incredible change, but also incredible growing inequality. And they often set up this sharp contrast between uh, the rural citizen as the sort of um, constant uh, sort of idealized civic participant um, and of sort of urban centers as spaces where there are um, kind of immense cultural changes that are kind of cast against it. And so one of the things we're interested in is how do places come to epitomize those almost phantom contrasts. And I think we see that all over the world. Um, But in the U.S., um, those phantom contrasts are deeply racialized because it's a deeply racialized uh, society. Joshua, who do you consider a real Midwesterner? Is it someone who's born in the region or someone who lives there? 
Well, I, I wouldn't uh, say our book is a resource to find out, but mm-hmm. I, I do think that those are always contested, right? And not just in the Midwest, right? You, you get people debating who's a real New Yorker in, in terms of the city or a real Southerner. And frankly, any town you can go to in the world, you get some vision of insider and outsider. Well, and for example, forgive me for interrupting, but I'm no, thinking please. about Orson Welles, who was born in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Uh, not exactly where you might have expected him to come from no and you know like he he and he i think that was revealed publicly in the dick cabot show in like the 60s or 70s i can't remember and you know and dick cabot introduces it on purpose you know to suggest what a bizarre thing that this cosmopolitan global uh urban figure of Orson Welles should be from, of all places, dot, 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 Kenosha, Wisconsin. And, you know, there, too, there's this idea of, and this we find this over and over again in media depictions, there's this idea that people are, you know, um, aren't just from the Midwest, and it's rarely a badge of honor, um, except in some cases, like, say, Leslie Nope in Parks and Recreation. Um, typically, you're merely from the Midwest, or can you believe such and such is in the Midwest? It's It has this kind of very banal uh, quality to it, which we think often seems like it's done kind of, you know, in, in, a, in, a, in an innocent and fun way way, um, you know, Garrison Keillor is sort of the king of this, uh, poking fun at the kind of bucolic parochial nature of the Midwest. But we think that, again, to echo Brett, that the cultural work that performs in part is a bit of a sleight of hand, where it is, talks about the ordinariness of whiteness, of plain speaking, practical white folk. And the question we have to ask in, in a society like ours is, in contrast to whom? So when we ask questions like who real Americans are or who real Midwesterners are, the question is uh, also simultaneously who supposedly is an inauthentic citizen, an inauthentic American, an inauthentic Midwesterner. And most often those uh, figures that are conjured as not true Midwesterners or not true Americans are people who are not white, people who are not seen as hardworking uh farmers or hardworking uh, small business owners or factory laborers, um, which is part of the history of these uh, values of whiteness that the Midwest has helped prop up over the years. My guests on today's Leonard Lopit at Large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org, are Britt E. Halverson and Joshua O. Reno. Their book, Imagining the Heartland, White Supremacy and the American Midwest, which is published by University of California Press. Britt, you were raised in the Midwest, but had family members in other parts of the world. Do you think that contact with those family members kept you from becoming insular? (laughs) That's a really interesting question. I think um, one of the points uh, we make in the book, and certainly in my own experience, was that the Midwest was never insular. And I, I think that's one of the very interesting, fascinating values that's gotten ascribed to this imagining of the Midwest over time. I certainly grew up with uh friends who had family members in other parts of the world, um, even, you know, sort of within my own community in Michigan. And I mean, definitely within my own family. But one of the things we point out in the book is that 
Midwestern communities have long been tied to far-flung global market exchanges, you know, industries, and even the most old-fashioned amber-encased portraits of farming um, really conceal all the ways like farmers are reliant on price fluctuations of wheat and corn within global markets or of currently in the moment gas prices um, and tied into all sorts of far-flung exchanges like wheat was produced and sent to um, Britain in the early 20th century from Midwestern communities. And so the idea of the Midwest as insular, we point out, has some more insidious dimensions because it can tend to reinforce the idea of the Midwest as an ordinary center of whiteness, of white nativism, and it can serve as kind of a symbol or an emblem of that. Joshua, were you already an anthropologist when you moved to the Midwest? Oh, geez. I don't know if it, I don't know if I'm an anthropologist now. I mean, I, it, you know, those those kind of uh, you're described um, as an anthropologist. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me, uh, let me put it this way. Professor of anthropology, I think, I, is, I makes I you know, an anthropologist, right? doesn't it? I need to I need to accept that. No, but, I, you know, it, what I mean by that, in a way, is that, that who's a real anthropologist is sometimes debated with the same ferocity as who's a real American. Right. But I mean, uh Maybe no one really cares about that, but other anthropologists. But, you know, I, I would say that everyone's kind of an anthropologist when they're living, uh, growing up anywhere, because we ask questions about who we are, where we come from, and what the people like us are, uh, who are around us are like. And that if you're lucky enough to go uh, into higher education, that your view of who you are, what people are like, and who you can know about expands. And then if you become fascinated by those things, you get to... Um, be an anthropologist. I learned anthropology first, the, the term, um, attending Cornell University, which is sort of the school that was closest to where I grew up uh, that people would go to to, you know, learn about things like that. And I accidentally majored in it sort of because I had the fewest credits required um, and I wanted to stay in school. But like anthropology is is kind of incidental to our project in a way because um there's a ways in which, uh, yes, we're anthropologists, but we're interested in um, questions that also are interesting for political scientists, for people who do American studies, for historians. And some of the people that have inspired us the most are people outside of anthropology, per se, um, because they're all asking these questions about the, sort of the country we live in and its sort of legacies of white supremacy um, and nationalism and how they've intersected in troubling ways. So writing this book actually put us in conversation outside of our familiar uh, disciplinary boundaries, um, which we think has been quite uh, productive for us. Well, you have to think in terms of politics when you look at the fact that uh, Wisconsin, Michigan, Iowa, and Ohio all uh, voted for Barack Obama twice, but then voted for Donald Trump. Oh, for sure. And then, you know, some of them uh, switch back over to Biden. And those kind of uh, we of course, we all know that those um, elections are about all sorts of complicated things about turnout and issues that, you know, bring people out voting like we have now after the Roe decision suddenly energizing supposedly uh, Democrats leading up to the midterms. So, uh, you know, it's hard to make too much of that. But I mean, it's what we would say is that it's not the first time that you've had those kinds of um, you've had the Midwest playing that role in electoral politics. Um, and if you look at the kind of uh, last 
what most people would say the last really successful third party in this country was the populist party, which was primarily made up of a coalition of people in the South, farmers in the South and farmers in the Midwest. And so you have a history of um, those regions, not only serving as blocks with self-defined interests, but he, but in addition, being targeted as blocks by politicians who think they can um, inspire them, move them with images of, you know, uh, uh, whiteness of economic change and reform um, for deserving people who work hard and are owed it to them. So, you know, part of it is about the interests in particular regions as, as you know, uh, economic sectors, if you like. But some of that interest in voting for a candidate who inspires you is about um, deliberate attempts by politicians to reach specific publics who they draw to vote, uh, perhaps who've never voted before, as happened with Trump, for instance. Britt, what role did the Midwest play before and after the Civil War? Didn't new territories have the right to decide whether or not to permit slavery when they joined the Union? Were, were some of the Midwestern states in that position? They certainly did. And I mean, some of the Midwestern states that people would identify as being in the region, um, you know, Missouri certainly was a slave owning state. And or Kansas um, didn't large numbers of abolitionists and pro-slavery forces move yeah, to the territory right. of Kansas in order to vote yeah, exactly. uh, in those elections? Bleeding Kansas. Um, That's what you it, know, the, it became known as Bleeding Kansas. <laughs> yes, um, absolutely. And I think um, one of the things we look at in the book is that these the Midwest as a region, uh, as a kind of regionalist label almost, that people started investing in and making cultural um, productions about, whether it be art or later film fiction and so forth, really came about in the Reconstruction era. And that's very relevant to thinking about how those portraits of the region were really invested in small white landowners. And of course, that's a, a even more durable image in American culture with Thomas Jefferson and the yeoman farmer and the idea of small landowners as being the center of democracy. But I think in that reconstruction period, there was a big investment in narratives about the virtue, um, the technical know-how, the productivity of small white landowners. And it was often served as a foil against large white plantation owners who were more clearly identified with the ills and the sins and the horrors of slavery. And white landowners who were much more small and engaged in farming in the Midwest often served as this counterpoint of white virtue that contributed to a, a kind of recuperation of whiteness in the national imaginary. And that's something that we became very interested in that trope of sort of white goodness pitted against white badness in this very simplified way as something that the Midwest has played a big role in articulating. Well, John Brown played a major role in that Bleeding Kansas era, didn't he? That's right. Yeah, absolutely. He was With, an abolitionist um, and he mm -hmm. paid the price. Yes. I'd just say on that, uh, if, if I may. Please. You know, that's where you, you, you get some Let's make this as conversational as possible, okay? <laughs> we, we'll, we'll do our best. So, uh, you know, the, there's, this is where some interesting contradictions come in, right? So, for instance, you have Bleeding Kansas and you have um, Kansas being not only a 
um, part of the Civil War era of violence uh, around the question of slavery, but also being, in a way, the the you know. Um, uh, major uh, place that that kicks off a lot of the violence that then spreads to the the whole country during civil war, and you also get people like John Dillinger, and you get all kinds of um, interesting figures, Al Capone, who are in the Midwest. You get some of the first serial killers, Ed Gain. Well, earlier you have Mid- Jesse James. You have Jesse James. Now, so what would this tell us? Well, it would tell us in theory. Oh, what a violent region! Oh, look at all the violence there. What's bizarre is. Even after that, you still keep getting a reassertion of this bucolic, peaceful place. Violence is supposed to be in the cities. Why in the cities? Well, for obvious reasons, right? And and even contradictions or paradoxes where, you know, you get someone like, and we talk about this in the book, you get filmmakers um, uh, who want to make horror movies, like say John Carpenter, and they think, well, where would we? Where would no one expect murder? Where would no one expect violence? Oh, I know. I'll put Halloween in the Midwest because no one expects it there. So you you get this historical region that one could imagine that we would consider it as a nation a place of terrible violence, but somehow it keeps getting transformed again into this mytho- mythological place so that it seems like a place you wouldn't expect violence. So let's put our, our killer there. In, um, and this is some of the weird stuff you get with these cultural products. In contrast to the image of bleeding Kansas, the Wizard of Oz begins and ends in a small <laughs> town in Kansas. Uh, and, and Kansas seems to represent the coziness and familiarity of home, uh, the dull, drab routine of everyday life. Do you think that Dorothy's return to the black and white world of canvas after her time in the colorful world of Oz is heartwarming or a defeat? Well, that's actually debated heavily by scholars of the Wizard of Oz, you know, as you know, people including um, recently attacked, uh, sadly, uh, Salman Rushdie had written about what to make of the ending of Wizard of Oz. And one of the questions people have to your point, Leonard, is, is Dorothy betraying this kind of rebelliousness that she has at the beginning by saying there's no place like home Mm -hmm. and going back to live in the drab gray world? You know, and it's not just gray in the film. It's gray the way Frank Baum describes it in the novel. It's this gray, miserable place. And in the movie, the town is all white. That's right. It's all white. Um, but, you know, think about Dorothy, too. What is ma- what makes Dorothy special? What makes Dorothy special is she sees things the way they really are. None of the other characters do. The lion, the tin man, they, the scarecrow, they don't see who they really are. Only the plain speaking white Midwesterner can see things for the way they really are. She, in a way, can't lie. She can only tell the truth and only see things as they are. And that kind of plain speaking, plain thinking subject of the plains is a common trope you get all the way from Dorothy to Leslie Nope in Parks and Rec to Superman, mm-hmm. right? What makes Superman different? Because Christopher Reeve says in the 1970s movie, 78 movie, uh, I don't lie. He's a true American who sees things as they are, doesn't lie, and that makes him special and virtuous. And, he and was, these kinds of images are common. His childhood home was Smallville in That's Kansas, right. which uh, is usually portrayed as an idyllic, isolated American town. It's an yeah. imagined town. Yes, go ahead, Britt. I was just going to build on what Josh said, and one of the fascinating things that we traced back was that um, the Hollywood set designers that were invested in creating the first Wizard of Oz film in the late 1930s actually drew from a series of paintings about the Midwest um, that were created by a group of artists called the Regionalists, and it was... um, 
Thomas Hart Benton, John Stuart Curry, Grant Wood, and they produced a lot of art in the Depression era. Uh, they were really invested in these realist landscape portraits. Um, we've inherited many of them, and people can kind of quickly call them to mind, you know, like American Gothic, of course, was sort of stern, morally upright, strict Iowan farmers in the portrait. Um, which had a kind of satirical bent to it, uh, tornado over Kansas and so on, and Grant Wood's fall plowing. Mm. And they were really invested in creating almost a landscape free of people that, but that was associated deeply with white small farmers and especially with productive verdant landscapes, really green for as far as the eye can see. What was really striking about that is that they basically erased um, the struggles of the Dust Bowl, the Depression era, the bank foreclosures on farms that were occurring at the same time, racial inequality, uh, migrant labor on farms, and, and much, much more. And so we've found it fascinating to see how those are some of the touchstones that people kind of call to mind. And then they've gotten picked up in the way that Josh is describing that films even have used the Midwest as kind of a backdrop or a setting. I mean, you can even think of Hitchcock and North by Northwest and the crop duster scene, you know, using the sort of seemingly safe haven of bucolic Illinois farms. Well, as I, I want to a, return a to the art. Terror. I want to return to the art in a little while, but uh, yeah. we're going to go to a break now. But before we do, I, I did want to return to Superman for just one more question. Didn't his kindly adoptive father, Pa Kent, warn him to have a secret identity because people wouldn't accept him for being different? Yeah. And, and in the first novelization to that effect, because there aren't there is no Pa Kent in the very first action comics with Superman. They uh, it was just some motorist who doesn't matter to the Superman story. If you read the original, they, they make no difference. It's only in later novelizations that come out in the 50s that that first of all, instead of a passing motorist, it's a farmer who finds him. And second of all, that that farmer raises him in a Midwestern farm uh, with Ma Kent uh, and teaches him to be a good man, uh, which just like some people see, you know, Dorothy betraying her true rebellious nature. Some people have written that that's a betrayal of the original vision of Superman because original, originally Superman created by two Jewish uh, authors um, in from Cleveland uh created an urban figure who created and made himself a hero in and metropolis. the uh, that's right sorry in metropolis in metropolis that's right and instead uh what you've gotten in the, in later novelizations in the film and now it's been enshrined in in superhero canon is that it's his midwestern upbringing that made him who he is and how do we know that because in other alternative versions of superman that have come out since the way they change the kind of hero he is is they say what if superman landed in moscow what if superman landed in the south during uh during slavery so alternative uh, imaginations of superman now are about where he lands as opposed to the the Midwest, which made him the good hero we all know. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Hi, hope you're enjoying. 
enjoying my conversation with Britt Halverson and Joshua Reno. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of their book, Imagining the Heartland, White Supremacy in the American Midwest. To do that, just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212 212- Two zero nine two nine five zero during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's, <coughs> excuse me, give and then the number two wbai dot org, or two one two two zero nine twenty nine fifty. But don't forget to make that fifty dollar donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at large, and we thank you very much. <coughs> I suddenly have a little tickle in my throat, and we return to our guests, Britt Halverson and Joshua Reno. Their book published by University of California Press. Britt Halverson is Associate Professor of Anthropology at Colby College, and Joshua Reno is a Professor of Anthropology at Binghamton University. Getting back to the art, the regional art that you were discussing comes along around the same time that uh, the New York art scene would have ties to European artists like Picasso, uh, the European traditions of Cubism and Surrealism. Uh, so was regionalism, regionalist art a kind of reaction to that? Absolutely. I think what's interesting is um, that it was very much kind of trying to position itself as creating an American art tradition that was was ground in the in the real and it wasn't so uh, kind of engaged with sort of modern art portraits or with um, sort of surrealist and you know kind of visions of the world it and rejected it abstraction was, it was all about landscape it rejected and abstraction things. completely um, and it was in many ways, uh, an art movement that sort of got circulated far and wide. It wasn't restricted to art galleries or, or kind of elite art spaces. It was actually reproduced in publications like the Saturday Evening Post <laughs> and circulated to people who were magazine subscribers. And so those images had a real durable effect. But they were, they were all positioned against these more international sort of art movements and scenes that were connected to Picasso and to, um, a variety of, of artists in New York. And we also point out that they very much left out of their portraits, um, uh, any kind of, uh, much of the social critique of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, other artists like Dorothea Lang and Ben Sean, uh, photographers, muralists, uh, were more engaged in that kind of form of social critique. But on the whole, they, they focused more on sort of recuperative national values at that time in the Depression era and, and did a lot of uh, erasure at the same time. Well, what does their work tell us about Midwest values? Grant Wood's 1930 painting, American Gothic, features a stoic-looking Iowa fa- farm couple. Uh, the man holds a pitchfork, for example. And, <laughs> and I've always wondered why that couple became so famous. Obviously, they touched a real nerve. Mm, yeah, or was I think it a, that-, that, that people saw it as satirizing American values? Mm. I know at the time there was backlash from some Iowans who found the portrait uh, insulting. And then other critics also said that they 
people missed the fact that Grant Wood was actually being somewhat satirical. Um, but I think some have also read that painting as a kind of very direct representation of a quality of sort of sternness and hard work and um, moral uprightness connected to white farmers in the Midwest. And it's kind of been one of these lasting images, even if it seems caricaturized and slightly stereotyped and satirized, it's still had a lasting impact because I think it ties into all of those ideas about the Midwest that we've been talking about. Uh, Justin, what about a, another regionalist artist, John Stuart Curry? He often painted uh, a, a uniform agrarian landscape that was populated by unsophisticated, hardworking white farmers. And maybe you can describe his 1929 painting, Tornado Over Kansas. Yeah, I find this painting really fascinating. I mean, it's a, a piece that shows this foreboding, uh, darkening sky, a tornado in the distance, a family, a white farm family um, with sort of, you know, you can see in their clothes that they've been out in the farm working with overalls and mm -hmm. um, a kind of very idyllic, uh, you know, family of uh, a man and a woman and two children, very much creating this sort of heterosexual white farm family uh, kind of hard scrabble rushing into the cellar to seek cover and safe haven from uh, an approaching tornado. It's very much an action scene, but it also is very much presenting the sort of almost uh, expected bucolic landscape um, of, of Kansas in, in that painting um, that was associated with the regionalists and also almost creating itself as if it's a snapshot of action. You know, I think that a realist dimension is really important here where it feels to viewers like they're almost looking in on a scene of urgency and there. Um, and like we talked about earlier, it's a reaction to um, art as abstraction. Well, didn't it influence Hollywood set designers uh, and lead the public to think that their portrayal represented the real America? Joshua, you want to jump in here? Yeah, I mean, I would say so. But, you know, the the. You know, it's, as Britt said, it had a direct influence in how set designers, say Wizard of Oz, uh, helped, you know, with how they generated the uh, backdrops that were used for some of the, the kind of, you know, the, the, the film is uh, all shot in like whatever Los Angeles, but how they create the kind of Midwestern landscape uh, through through painting, which was the common uh, method uh, at the time. I think one thing we, we really try to get across in the book, too, is is who these images have been for. And, you know, the um, the flexibility of these images or their their kind of a, ability to mean different things to different people like you were saying a minute ago with the grant wood painting uh, how, how Britt discussed how it could for some be satire others be um uh, a genuine realist portrait i think for our purposes it's less important like which one's the right one and more um uh how do these images become so uh, inviting to circulate in the first place to to mean a lot of things to a lot of people and you know characters like we've been talking about superman uh dorothy gale or or the grantwood painting they don't just uh circulate like within the midwest or within the united states they circulate globally mm -hmm. like there was a study done years ago that as many um you know, more more children in various countries could name Superman than could name the president of the United States or whatever, right? Like, I, so so the 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 fact that um, 
these images are so powerful uh it is partly because they can have this kind of emptiness to them where you can project lots of meanings onto them. Um, uh, and there's something empty in a way about the images that circulate most prominently and globally about the Midwest, which uh, that emptiness has, you know, two aspects to it. Some of it is the emptiness of meaning, but also the literal emptiness of big, open, seemingly uh, uh, um, white landscapes devoid of any diversity, variety, industry, uh, and so on. And the wooden um, curry paintings uh, usually ignore the environmental devastation of the Dust Bowl and, and other things that were happening at the time. Yeah, and I would just point out, too, that one of the really important things to recognize about these paintings, their ubiquity, how much they got circulated and so on, is that this was happening with the regionalist art in the 1920s, 1930s. Um, it was a time of the great migration from southern towns and cities to northern ones. It was also a time of the end of the allotment period among um, indigenous groups in the Midwest, where there was also um, indigenous migration um, to Midwestern cities. Um, it was also a time when there had already been for generations multiracial um, communities in the Midwest. Um, you know, just to name a few, Suji Vega has written a wonderful book called Latino Heartland that points out that Mexican migrants were working in the 1910s in steel mills in northern Indiana. And anthropologists um, Nabil Abraham and Andrew Shryak have a really wonderful book called Arab Detroit that points out that um, Syrian and Lebanese migrants played a crucial role in um, Ford's River Rouge plant, which in Dearborn, which was um, at the time one of the world's largest manufacturing centers and had come to the U.S., early on uh, in the 1910s, 1920s, and were part of those um, manufacturing communities. So it's important to think about all of that historical evidence in conversation with these images, because then it really brings to light what they leave out. My guests on today's Leonard Lopez at Large are Britt E. Halverson and Joshua O. Reno. Their book, Imagining the Heartland, White Supremacy and the American Midwest, published by the University of California Press. What does Sinclair Lewis's popular 1920 novel Main Street tell us about Midwest values and lives? How does it illustrate your basic thesis of the affinity between the Midwest and whiteness? Well, I think Sinclair Lewis Main Street um, was one of the first novels that really developed um, both the idea of sort of the white virtue thesis about the Midwest or sort of like the white goodness and simplicity as goodness. But then it also turned it on its head and it was part of the backlash against that, which was about closed mindedness and uh, insularity and the sort of dangers and undersides of that white goodness argument about the Midwest. So and can it be read as a satire of Midwestern parochialism? Or, I think it can. Or Midwestern niceness and parochialism impervious to criticism or satire? <laughs> Not impervious at all. Um, I, I think there's a lot of different readings of Sinclair Lewis's book, but he based uh, uh, the, you know, Gopher Prairie on Sox Center, Minnesota, where he grew up. And 
a lot of people have read his book as a satire uh, of small town ways and intractability and the sort of drab physical environment version of of small town Midwestern communities. Um, he also in that book does a lot of really interesting things with whiteness and class, where he talks about how um, people who are sort of middle class, uh, um, more well-traveled um, Midwesterners who come back to go for prairie and interact with working class residents of the area often sort of try to um, claim cultural superiority through their seeming cosmopolitanism. And so it's also a way of kind of pointing to class injury and also questioning that white middle classness is automatically assumed to be white goodness. So there's some more subtle aspects of the book that I think have gotten lost over time. But um, in many ways, it's a satire of sort of the whole white goodness thesis. Well, Joshua, there, the, there's the poet Robert Bly, who was Minnesota's first poet laureate and was critical of modernist poets like T.S. Eliot. Would you characterize Bly's poetry as inward? And is inwardness a quality associated with the Midwest? Well, I think Bly, who was also uh, a, a critic himself um, and, and sort of a great writer on his own poetry, um, uh, has characterized his work as inwardly focused. And there was a kind of, you know, a general agreement among uh, critics of of. Uh, the figure of Bly that he, what he sort of brought to the scene in poetry that led to his uh, becoming poet laureate was um, a kind of transcendentalism that, you know, reached back to uh, folks like Rilke, who he uh, had translated and read and, and criticized previously. Um, and that involved a sort of like absolutely inwardly uh, focused um, poetic mind that was um, taking an, an account internally of um a feeling and of um, how uh, being connected or disconnected from surroundings. What is interesting for our purposes and for our book is that, um, you know, his ability to turn inward was seen by many critics and by himself as activated by the fact that he was from the snowy fields of Minnesota. That, well, he embraced um, the men's movement in response to the women's rights movement. And I was wondering if he ever wrote explicitly about race. I mean, he did, you know, implicitly. I mean, he he wrote certainly as a white man and he wrote from that perspective. But sorry, a white conservative, wouldn't you? Well, certainly. But I I think that, um, you know, what's interesting is that often whiteness uh, and many uh, scholars have written this uh, before us, that whiteness often goes unsaid, that it's what is sometimes called unmarked, uh, which means that people like Bly operate uh, as white, but it, but that creates an identity of no identity, um, a culture of no culture. It's as if they um, are seeing everything from above and from outside, which is a wonderful perspective to think that you adopt when you want to be an inwardly focused transcendentalist, because it means you're freed from history, you're freed from from any social obligations, connections, or traumas that otherwise would, you know, dictate your life as if you're a woman or a person of color, certainly in the United States. So um, given that emphasis in his early uh, poems, it's not all that surprising that he later uh, became a figure in the men's movement, although he would say, and most would say, that he wasn't so much a leader as he was a, a sort of a uh, whatever shamanistic influence, right? Um, and his book, uh, um, 
uh, and I'm blanking on the name, but he had a, a, a series of interventions that were an attempt to um, talk about the need for a men's movement, given the sort of indignities and traumas that men had suffered and how had they suffered them, to your point, Leonard, they'd suffered them because of gains uh, from, you know, a feminist movement and the civil rights movement made by uh, non-whites and, and uh, people who are not men that somehow had uh, led other people to uh, be ahead of where um, people like uh, uh, Bly were. And and there's this sense of having been robbed of having a true identity as a as a man because of um, other people around you succeeding. And, in you know, in his writings, he does kind of talk about race, but it's usually to say, you know, troubling things, frankly, about how, uh, you know, uh, men today and he means white men implicitly can adopt quote African rituals to uh, restore our manhood and be real men again. How did it become mandatory for broadcasters and politicians seeking national office to speak at a Midwest in non accents when you consider the fact that um, uh, the Scandinavian accents were really common in the Midwest? Yeah, it's interesting how that the there, there was a time and, um, you know, perhaps this is still true, but where the sort of Midwest provided the baseline accent for news reporting and broadcasting was imagined to be much like whiteness, the accent of no accent. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's fascinating to think about how that goes hand that language right is part of the ways how we speak is profoundly racialized well, and that, that that plain speech was supposed to indicate whiteness wasn't it yeah without making right. any direct reference to race that's right so the the whiteness was just sort of like josh has described the unmarked sort of flying below the radar um version of the way to talk and it was considered to be this sort of um, baseline for broadcasters. But what we point out in this book is that that's another way that Midwest kind of quietly crept in, where the very idea of the region kind of helps to supply part of that idea of sort of Central Americanness of sort of whiteness as being unmarked of the sort of baseline, ordinary, realist portrait of the way things are and um, that that is always being, you know, pitted against something else. But it's a really important, I think, for thinking about um, our society is profoundly racialized and thinking about racial inequality to think about the ways that those images um, kind of exist in our cultural ether everywhere, that we're swimming in them, we're awash in them, but that the Midwest has been one of those touchstones. We have and just a, a couple of minutes left, and I yeah. want to touch on one other thing. Uh, you write, quote, in the post-2016 era where whose racism has seemingly become more political, publicly apparent to whites themselves, this is apparent in racist Violence and racist talk, most obviously by members of the white power movement, the United States today, but not only by them. Is this a Midwestern thing? I would say no. It's uh, it's a I mean, sadly, it's an American thing, but not even just an American things. You're finding similar discourses, uh, uh, sort of um, new forms of racism with something's 
people call neo-racism uh, mm-hmm. for, uh, sort of percolating uh, in many parts of the world. Um, it is, it, though, it often does have a Midwestern anchor point or a Midwestern stage is used to express those sentiments. As Brett said earlier, the Midwest often is not so much a source for uh, uh, you know, uh, more racists or something. It's it's a useful um, uh, port, you know, paint, place to uh, portray or stage claims about race and claims about whiteness um, in a way we haven't left behind Grant Wood paintings in the way we deal with the Midwest. Although there are songs like "I'm Going to Kansas City," which was obviously came out of black musical tradition that was a pop song uh there are all sorts of songs about chicago so the midwest is a more complicated place but yeah the image you're describing is of the great the vast area of the midwest and uh is there anything you want to say in the last 30 seconds or so before uh, i sum up i think it's really important to understand that um part of what we're highlighting is that these are contested ideas about belonging and place in American history. And um, one of the really important questions I think people should do is when there are easy narratives, uh, easy stories about regions or places, to become curious about why, to question their durability and how quickly, how easy they are to latch onto, and to ask what those stories do. Um, and that they're not inevitable. We can we can challenge and change them. We can make them more inclusive. And my great thanks to Britt E. Halverson, who is Associate Professor of Anthropology at Colby College, and Joshua O. Reno, who's a Professor of Anthropology at Binghamton University, authors of Imagining the Heartland, White Supremacy in the American Midwest from the University of California Press. Thank you so much. You've been great guests. Thank you. Thank you, Leonard. And that brings us to the end of our show. My great thanks to Deborah Freeman for preparing today's interview. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed one million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcast. You can check us out on Twitter. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is lettercopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, if you make a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at large right now, you can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, Imagining the Heartland, White Supremacy in the American West by Britt Halvison and Joshua Reno. So why not make that call right now at 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. That's given the number to WBAI.org. You might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. And if you do that at 10, 15, 20, whatever amount of money you want a month, we'll say thank you with a BAI tote bag for anyone who becomes a member for $10 or more. Remember that we are not 
We rely 100% on listener donations. We do, don't take foundation grants, and that allows us to be completely free speech radio. We're the only station, the New York radio dial, that's 100% listener-sponsored. Please help us with your tax-deductible support. We're off tomorrow, but I hope you can join us on Thursday when our guests will be one of our favorite regulars on the show, Bob Hanley. We'll see you then.